Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in, and I'll, I'll do a little bit of review for us so you can all be up to speed on where we are, and then uh, we'll jump in. If you want to, you can go ahead and start finding these texts. We'll be in Matthew 20 in the beginning, in my little introduction in Matthew chapter 20, and then we'll jump over to Luke 7. So um, you, can, you can turn to both of those if you want. There's uh, Bibles underneath where you can grab and, and, and take one of those if you don't have one and use those underneath you. But we'll be in Matthew chapter 20 and Luke chapter 7. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. I thank you for the privilege that you've given me to be able to stand here and preach your word. I pray that you would um, come now and send your spirit and help me realize that I am absolutely dependent upon you to say anything, to do anything. So would you come now and fill me with your spirit and speak through me. I pray, God, that all the things that would be helpful and true that you would say through me and things and those that wouldn't, that you would keep me from saying them. God, I I confess that I am completely dependent upon your spirit um, to say anything and for anybody's heart to be changed here. I can't do that, um, but you can do it. And I pray that you would, you would start with me and help me realize what it means to be a servant, to be a serving church member, and that you would, <clears throat> for all of us, God, open up our hearts and minds to, to think through all the implications of what we hear today from your text. Would you come now and illumine this text by the power of your spirit and cause us to see Christ as the most beautiful and precious reality and the good news of what he's done for us on the cross would so invade our hearts that we could not leave here without being changed. All of that is a miracle. And we're begging for you to do that this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we've been going through this book, and for the last six weeks, we've been going through a sermon series called Remedy Church Member. Um, And if you haven't been here, I'll catch you up to speed. What I've been doing is, I haven't been using, I haven't preached the chapters of the book, but instead, the ideas or concepts of each chapter have kind of used as a launching pad to jump into the text, whether I are preaching or Jack's been preaching, and we've just looked at a text and just kind of expositorily run through that text and look and seen what Christ would would be telling us. And as we've been going through, I said this kind of very beginning, um, at the beginning of the sermon series, I wasn't, I wasn't going to take a t- any time to uh, explain what would be my theological position of why church membership is biblical. We started with that as a presupposition that we just, that's it. And so since we believe that over the last six weeks, we just talked about the implications of that. So since we believe that church membership is biblical, if you're a Christian, you should be a member of a church. We just started with that as absolutely what we think is true. And somebody's actually said, hey, can we talk about that more? And I've gotten to express through email some, some biblical grounding for that. But we started with that as an implication. Over the last six weeks, all we've done is just talked about what are the implications of that then. And so we looked at several things. First week, we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and said that we need to be functioning church members. Therefore, everybody that's a Christian has a gift. Everybody has something that they can do to to enhance and grow the body. Some are arms, some are feet, some are legs. Paul uses this idea of members of a body. And so since we are all those things, we have to be functioning. We can't choose just to say, well, since I'm the arm, I'm just going to not work, and then this is what the body looks like. It's always operating one-armed and, and, and things like that. So every one of us have to, have to function. And if we all function, then the church operates as it should and it grows. We talked about what it means to be a unifying church member in that we want the gospel to be the most important thing and anything that would cause divisiveness inside the church, secondary issues, your view of eschatology, those kinds of things, while we think those are important, certainly we want you to grow in your theological understanding. We don't want those to be things that would cause division. 
We've also talked about uh, what it means to set our preferences aside and put others first. We talked about what it means to pray for our leadership as a kind of church member that wants to pray for our leadership. Last week, I talked about what it means to be a missional church member. In other words, all these things we've said are great. But the task that Jesus gave us right before he left is to go make disciples. And so all of us as church members can't just come into our holy huddle and take care of each other and that's it. But also, as church members, we have to go and be missional, making disciples of those that are already Christians, meaning helping them grow in their walk with Christ. We used the family language last week from that, and we talked about how the the husband is to nourish and cherish his own wife. Therefore, those that are in the church members should nourish and cherish those that are in the the, um, family, but also... Right when it got to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, we see that as he talked about husbands and wife, just the way that the biblical writers thought is children would be there. So children, and it goes into the ideas of what children uh, should look like, and even fathers, and how in Ephesians 6, 4, it tells fathers not to exasperate or provoke their children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline of the instruction of the Lord. So the natural assumption as you read Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 is fathers and mothers have children. And so families have children. And so since we're a family of God, we're supposed to go have children. So like my favorite point last week was remedy church, have children. And then parentheses spiritually. Um, so we, we should be seeing obeying the command of Matthew 28, making disciples of unbelievers. We should be seeing spiritual children being born again here at remedy. In other words, you are reaching people in your family or in your neighborhood or in your jobs that don't know Christ. And they are becoming part of either this family or a church family. So those are the things that we talked about. And this week, what we're going to talk about is being a serving church member. Um, Servanthood or being a serving church member or just being someone who is known for being a servant is very difficult. Um, James Boyce, he's a commentator, talking about this difficulty we find in serving. He says, how little we know of serving others. He's talking about the church, by the way. How little we know of serving others Even after many years of Christian living, humility reminds us of the need to die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus and serve others. It is one of the most difficult things we have to learn. Um, I I really understand this. Perhaps you're not wired this way, but I am. I'm I'm quite self-centered. I like to do things that um, you know, are easy for me. So when it comes to the things of the church, the things of God, I like to study. I like to think about sermons. I like to do those kinds of things. But the, the whole other side is that, he, that Jesus calls us all to is to be a servant. Those things don't come naturally to me. I think that they do come naturally to some people. Um, but for, for others, wired this way, this is absolutely true. It's one of the most difficult things we have to learn is to take a mindset of servanthood and seeking others in front of ourselves. So that's what we're going to be talking about today is that we will be serving church members. Now, as I said, we're going to look at two texts, Matthew 20 and Luke 7. Matthew 20 will be our theological foundation of servanthood. It'll be where we find our theological uh, understanding of what Jesus thinks about it. And then as we go over to Luke 7, we'll see an illustration of what I think might be one of the most beautiful acts of servanthood in the Bible um, outside of Jesus. So... Let's go ahead and look at Matthew chapter 20. And in this particular text, as, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's given them a great understanding of, of what servanthood should look like. Starting in verse 26, it says, It shall not be so among you. So you who are Christians should look a little different. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So he's flipping the way we think 
greatness happens. We think greatness means being on top. And he says, greatness means being the servant. And he says, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So the first kind of implication, we're going to get to 28 in a second. But right here in verse 26 and 27, he's speaking to us and what it looks like for us. A theological understanding of what being a servant looks like for us means that we are told to lead by serving. The way that we as Christians take up the, the mantle, if you will, of leadership is by being a servant, by finding ways to serve others. So husbands, if you want to, I mean, this is just straight out of the text. It's not anything I'm making up. If you want to lead, you're supposed to be the lead servant of the home. For those of you that want to lead well in your, in your office or your job, the way that you'll see that you're most successful is by being the lead servant. And you, you say, well, then everybody thinks that they're in charge over you. I just find that hogwash. <laughs> I just find that to be complete hogwash. When Jesus Christ was washing the disciples' feet in John chapter 13, the night before he died, and he was taking the lowest form of servanthood, washing their feet, no one in the room questioned who the leader was. No one. And so the way that we lead is by serving. And so we're told here by Jesus that we're supposed to serve. I was with my kids once um, somewhere, and they all wanted to be first, and th- so I thought I'd be spiritual. And I said, you know, the first shall be last. And so if you really want to be first here, what you should try to do is get in last place. And then they didn't understand it. They didn't think it was a good idea. But um, I was trying to, you know, you know, but it doesn't work sometimes. So anyway, verses 26 and 27, here we are. Jesus tells us that the way that we're supposed to lead primarily is through service. And then he gives us the understanding of why. He gives us the illustration of the person that that sets the tone or sets the example or or helps us see who does it first. And it's in verse 28, which is Jesus. The reason why we're supposed to do that is here, verse 28. Jesus is talking about himself. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when we're thinking about ourselves in response to Christ, Spurgeon says, as we're looking at 26 and 27, Charles Spurgeon says, if we want to aim at greatness at all, which I think that we all, it's not a bad thing to want to aim. It's not like you should aim for mediocrity. I just want to be so bad for Jesus, or at least kind of in the middle. We should all aim for greatness for Christ. But he says, if you want to aim for greatness at all, it must, by be, it must be by being great in service, becoming the minister or servant of your brother. He also says, to rise in Christ's kingdom, we must descend and serve. And so this is exactly what Christ has done when he says the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. D.A. Carson, he's, he's amazingly smart. This is quite insightful. He's looking at this text and he says, the Son of Man, above anybody else, the Son of Man had every right to expect to be served. This is God himself incarnate. If there's anybody that ever lived, that had the expectation of being served, it would be Jesus. And he said, the Son of Man had every right to expect to be served, but instead, he served. And so if if Christ our Savior followed this pattern, then if he is our example, this is how we should live our lives as well. Jesus, remember, doesn't necessarily need us to serve him, Instead, as church members, he invites us in as members of his own body, and we graciously and humbly choose and say yes to serve 
him by serving the church and everyone else. So the pattern or the theological foundation of of the idea that we're going to be serving church members comes here among many other places that if you want to be first, if you want to be great, then you need to take the leadership or the leadership role by being a servant. And the reason why is because Christ himself, when he came, he came and gave his life as a ransom for many. He came and did not get served, but instead came to serve. Tom Rainer in this last chapter in this particular book says, therefore, as we're talking about servanthood, he says, healthy church membership means that you find your joy in being last instead of seeking your way and being first. <laughs> and I'm telling you what, that's some tough stuff, isn't it? How many of us want to find our joy in being last in the family whenever it's time to go somewhere, whenever we want our way or Whenever our wife or our husband wants something, how many of us really want to find our joy in being last and not getting our way so that everybody else can? He says, and this is exactly Christ's pattern. Healthy church membership means that we find our joy in being last. Maybe we import that into the church. How many of you want a certain thing to happen in the church and instead of getting your way, you, you take the back seat and let others do that first before you? Healthy church membership means you find your joy in being last instead of being first. And so when we look at Christ's example for us in in verse 28, we realize that he is the servant leader and he's our example. That he gives us everything we need for life and for sanctification. That the Lord literally stooped or condescended when he became man. He came down to us and condescended and served us by coming man and dying for the cross on us. And as even now, even in this moment condescending and stooping and serving us as we look at his word. There's there's no apprehension of anything that we're going to see this morning without him coming now and stooping and serving us to even see and understand his word. And he humbled himself as he served to the point of death in his service to atone for sin. So Christ is the supreme example when it comes to serving. So as we're looking at this idea that says that we're supposed to serve. We look at Christ where it says, D.A. Carson says, the display of divine glory shines most brightly when it is set aside for the sake of redeeming humankind by a shameful death. In other words, Christ's death on the cross displays for us the most supreme amount of glory of of, of God because he was willing to set aside his his own will, his own thoughts, and come for the will of the Father and die for us by dying a shameful human death. And that display of glory shines most bright for us. And when we see that, we realize that that humble display of, of service that Jesus took in going to the cross, that sets the example for what it looks like for us. Therefore, we can say it this way. In church membership, the divine glory shines most brightly when we set aside our own selves for the sake of serving others in this church. That great more greatly displays the glory of god so now we've set our foundation for service we see that christ certainly wants us to understand service kind of flipped and that service means leadership means being a servant so now i want you to look at luke chapter 7 um, and we're going to see what i think is probably one of the greatest outside of jesus dying on the cross one of the greatest acts of service in the bible today this is a story perhaps you're familiar with it of a woman that busts up into Simon the Pharisee's house um, and just breaks up the whole party. So in verse 36, uh, it says, 
one of the Pharisees, and his name's Simon, we'll see that in a little bit. Not Simon Peter, the disciple, just a random guy. It was kind of a common name. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come and eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. So usually, actually, not usually, all the time, (laughs) when Pharisees invite Jesus to anything, they're not really just wanting to hang out. They're not just saying, you know what, this guy, he is legit. He's a good dude. I just want to hang out with him and talk to him about the contemporary issues of the day and see what he thinks about stuff. No, no. Anytime a Pharisee invites Jesus into anything, there's always some kind of trap they're trying to cause. They never actually are successful um, because he's God. You you can't trap God. He's too smart, right? Um, Because he's God. But anyway, so in this particular situation, Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus over into his house and... Jesus knows why, but he goes anyway because there's a lot of things that are going to happen. But Simon the Pharisee, he's wanting to pull, you know, a fast one over Jesus. He doesn't even get the opportunity. But we see here in this verse 36, as we go into verse 37, that a woman enters the scene. So now you need to know a little bit, and perhaps you already know, but I want to bring us all up to speed in case you don't, a little bit about women in society and particularly even this woman. Um, this particular, well, in the day, first of all, women um, weren't the exact same as they are in America today. In a lot of ways, there's been lots of awesome strides forward. Women can do really anything now that men can do in any capacity, in any kind of way. But in this particular time, women were thought more of as property. Um, it was good for a woman to get married. If they got married, even though they might have been considered property, they would, could be assured that they would at least be cared for, their husband would take care of them, and the children that they would have. And so... Um, they had kind of a lower class of society. Uh, you see this in John 4 where Jesus is speaking to a woman that's a Samaritan. And she's like, what are you doing talking to me? A woman who's also a Samaritan. Like, that's two strikes against me. And you're just talking to me in the middle of the day. You're not supposed to be talking to me, a woman. So we can already see that there's like this kind of um, lower look on women that's, that's going on. So we have a woman that comes in here. Now, that's the way women were viewed. But this woman in particular, there's even more kind of surrounding her. You can see it right there in verse 37. And behold, a woman, you know, woman of the city, and she was a sinner. This means exactly what you think it means, that many of the men knew her in an intimate way outside of marriage. And so because of this, they thought she is not only just a woman, which isn't necessarily good in the society, but she's a sinful, dirty woman. And so there was a extra kind of stigma attached to this particular woman that just busts up into Simon the Pharisee's house. Now, some other things you should know. Uh, Whenever someone was invited into a house, it was customary for some things to happen for a guest. Um, Most affluent people in the day, those who had money, uh, usually had servants. They had enough money that they could pay servants. And as they had servants, there was kind of a hierarchy of servants, those that were on the top end and those that were on the lower end. Uh, and so if you're thinking Downton Abbey, these are the people that live like in the very bottom and you never see them on the show. Like they're just, they're just really, really, they're nobodies, right? And so this, this particular house and every house would have the servants that were on the, the bottom end of the totem pole. And the ones that were on the bottom end of the totem pole were the foot washers. So you have dusty roads, um, not, you know, the wrestler from the 80s, but you had literally the roads were dusty whenever you would walk around and... <laughs> 
No one got that because I'm almost 40 and some of y'all didn't watch wrestling. So anyway, I think he was Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream. Woo! Something like that. So anyway, the roads were really dusty there. And as they were dusty and they wore sandals, they would walk around. And you can just imagine how disgusting people's feet would get. And so they would walk around through the mud and through the dust and everything. And so whenever you would enter someone's house, they had all these different servants that would, that would take care of you from... Da, 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 but the, the lowest one was the people that had to wash people's dirty feet right? That's just the lowest form of servanthood there was. And so there were people that would do that. Now we see here, <clears throat> it says, notice verse 36. The, the customary thing is foot washing would happen. You would give, be greeted with a kiss and you would even maybe get some oil poured, poured on your head. I know we don't do that today. They just, that's what they did. It's, it's okay. So, but watch what happens. Notice verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to G- Jesus to come. He went to the Pharisee's house. He took his place at the table. None of the customary things happen right? And then all of a sudden, here comes this woman busting up into the scene. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. We all know what that means. It's exactly what you think it means. When she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table or at table in the Pharisee's house, she busted up into the house. And when she did, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment And standing behind him, that's Jesus, at his feet, she started weeping and she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed him with the ointment. Now, if we were just there and we had no idea and you didn't get to read the Bible and you're just, you know, living there 2,000 years ago and maybe Simon, you know, invited you over to, to the party and you're like hanging out and all of a sudden this happened, you'd just be like, what in the world is going on? We'd all, I mean, just put yourself in that what is going on here? This is strange. I've never seen this kind of behavior before. Um, commentators kind of go two different ways. I go this way, and I'll explain what that is. Some commentators say that this is kind of the first time this woman had ever come into contact with Jesus, and she just heard who he was, and she comes in there, and she's just having this experience. I don't think that's what's going on. I go the other way, which is before this, some other time, which we don't have, she had met Jesus. And in meeting Jesus, she had been saved by Jesus. There had been a time where she had come to know Christ, understood who he was, and believed and trusted him, even though he hadn't come to the cross yet, I know, but had some kind of salvific experience and heard and, then, and went and had lived that life of being a sinner, had left it and was just operating and living and, and walking and just enjoying grace and heard that man Jesus, who is God, who is the Savior, forgave me and he's coming back in town And when he comes back in town, he's the savior of me. He's the savior of the world, but he's also the savior of me. And wherever he is, I just want to give him more gratitude. I want to bust up in that place and go see him. Calvin says it this way. He's got a long quote. I won't read the whole thing. But basically he said, in a word, Christ is, or or, this woman has uh, the fruits of this, this, this expression that she has is flowing from the effects that have already previously happened in that, what he means is this woman has already been reconciled to God. And so this woman comes up here already a believer in Jesus. And so this expression that's happening is because she's already been saved. All right, so let's notice what she's doing. This is where we're setting the foundations for what I think might be one of the most beautiful acts of servanthood in the, in the Bible outside of Jesus. I know I keep saying that, but I just want to make sure you know. All right, so what does she do? So she runs up to Jesus and she begins crying. So the way that they sat there, they didn't, you know, pull up their chair and we sat at a table the way we do. But instead, they would kind of sit on the floor and everybody would put their feet behind them like this and the table and they would sit like this. That's why, I don't know if you are familiar with it, it says that John 
in the book of John, John said that he was literally, they were eating at the table and they would sit in a circle. And so the next one would be here. And so John literally is able to lay his head on the chest of Jesus because this is the way they sat. And so you got the feet behind him like this. And so the woman busts up into the house and she's just standing back here at his feet. And everybody's just kind of talking and they would eat right-handed like this and, and things like that. And she's standing behind him. And she, while she's behind him, she finds him, she sees, she clearly knows who he is because she goes right up to him and she begins to cry. So much so, I mean, think of getting two water bottles and you just turn them over and the water's just pouring out. This is what it means. There, there's two Greek words for cry. Um, this is the second kind of strong word, klio. It's literally like weeping and sobbing with like, like a lot of tears. And she's standing over his feet and she's crying and she's crying. So much so that there's enough water to literally clean the dusty, dirty feet of Jesus. She takes her hair and starts cleaning his feet with her hair. And then takes this, anoint, this ointment and starts putting it on it, just showing an expression of love and kissing his feet. I mean, this is an amazing scene. This is an amazing scene. And what she's doing is, remember the hierarchy? She's taking the lowest form of servanthood. The thing that didn't happen to Jesus, she comes in and starts doing. She becomes the servant, the foot-washing servant. Takes the lowest form of servanthood here. And starts washing the feet of Jesus because of what she's already experienced. Now this is where it gets awesome. Because Simon, of course, is a Pharisee. He's Mr. Legalist. He's Mr., you know, I got to stay clean at all costs. And so he sees all this happening in verse 39. And says, now when the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself. This just means he's thinking in his head. He sees this big display and he's like, man, wow. What is Jesus doing? You know, this guy cannot be who he says he is because he's letting this dirty, nasty woman touch him. Look what happens in 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, I mean, if he was really from God, he would have known who and what sort, who, sinner woman, dirty, gross, and what sort of woman, the one that gets around, this sort of woman who is touching him, for she is a sinner. I'm a Pharisee, and I don't get touched by sinners, or else I'm clean, and I got to go through the hole. And so we Pharisees stay away from the, the dirty people, the, the sinners. In other words, you're one too, but never mind that. Um, so if Jesus understood and really knew this woman's past, because if he was God, he should know that, he would never, ever let this woman be touching him and cleaning him like this. This is uncalled for. thinks all that in his head. Never says anything out loud. And just notice, by the way, um, this is just a side note. Just notice the ease at which Jesus is around sinners. It doesn't put him off. It doesn't scare him. And notice the, the uneasiness that Mr. Simon the Pharisee has. Church, we, we have to be known as friends of sinners. We have to, I'm, when I say you need to be at ease around sinners, that doesn't mean because you're just participating in their sin. It means that you are friends with them and they're at ease with you and you're at ease with them. You know what sinners do? They sin. You know what unbelieving sinners do? They act like unbelieving sinners. And so we don't prejudge and get all icked out about them and stay away from them and say, I can't believe they're doing this. Their lives are train wrecks. Of course they are. What would you expect? And you would be too outside the grace of Jesus. So be easy around them. Be at ease around them. This, they want you to be their friends. Be their friends. Don't be like this guy, like 
get away from your craziness because you're, that's what, that's what they do. That's what they do. That's just a side note back to it. So this is where it gets awesome. This is my favorite part. So Simon's thinking all this in his head. Oh, dirty woman touching Jesus. He's, he's not a prophet. He's not from God. This is my favorite thing. <laughs> Verse 40. And Jesus answering. I don't remember him saying anything out loud, but this is where it gets awesome, right? Jesus answers the thoughts of Simon. Oh, you think I'm not from God? I just read your mind. Now answer this. I am God. So this is where it gets awesome. Um, Jesus answered him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Teacher was just like a, a, a polite title they gave to people. He doesn't actually think he's like his teacher, the capital T teacher. You're my teacher. Um, so this is where it gets awesome. At the close of verse 40, before we get into 41, Jesus is answering the thoughts of Simon. Simon doesn't know that. Simon just thinks it's story time. Hey, I got something to tell you. Oh, it's story time. Everybody gather around. Jesus has a story for us. But this is where it's so great. It's because story time is going to penetrate into the heart of Simon and make all those thoughts he have get flipped around. So that's, that's why Jesus is so awesome. Well, many reasons, but this is one. So here we go. Story time, Simon. Verse 41. And as we're getting into verse 41 and following, we're going to see three key elements, three key elements of what it means to serve the church because Jesus is going to talk about this greatest act of service and there's going to be three amazing things that we can see that apply to us and what it means to be a servant of the church. First one, 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. That means 500 days wages. So whatever it takes... Uh, However much money you can accumulate and work in 500 straight days, about a year and a half-ish, I'm not great at math, year and a half-ish or so, um, maybe a little more, something like that. How much ever money you can make? Yeah, it's got to be at least $100,000, right? Um, probably not for us, right? So 500 denarii and the other 50, how much ever it takes you to make in about a month and a half. So both of those people owe the money lender. One owes, let's just, let's just make it easy, $500, one owes $50, all right? He says both of those owe the money, it says, but when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Both of you are canceled. You don't owe me 500. You don't owe me 50. Neither one of you owe me. Watch this. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon still in story time mode. I know the answer, Jesus. I know he has no idea he's addressing Simon's heart. Um, I know, Simon answered, the one I suppose for which they canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Let's stop here. Simon still has no idea it's all about him, right? But uh, Jesus is getting close into his heart. What we're seeing here, though, in this story, the context is clear, is that we are debtors. We are debtors because of sin. And cancellation of debt is what's happened for us. Cancellation of debt is what happened to us. And this particular woman understands that she is a great sinner. It's told us over and over so far in this text. She's a sinner, she's a sinner, great sinner, great sinner. We already know that she's a great sinner. If we're looking at the scales of 550, we're all supposed to be mentally jumping over and pointing at this woman saying, 500, 500, great sinner, big time. And so when we see that, we understand then, look at the things that she did in verse 37 and 38. This beautiful act of service is based on something. Here it is. Point number one, key element of being a servant. The first one is this. Servants understand the heart of the gospel. They understand the heart of the gospel. This is what I mean. This is what I mean. 
what we need to realize here is that we cannot pay back God for his forgiveness. Here's what happens. And, and maybe you're not wired this way, but this is what I think happens to us. Um, I've been in church my entire life. I grew up in a Baptist church, you know, one of those traditional big organs, you know, like, you know, we do the three songs. And so I just grew up in that, went to VBS every single, I'm not saying that's bad. We need those churches to reach people. So everybody needs a certain church. So I grew up in that. I went to VBS every year. I went to RA camp every year. I went to youth camp every year. I got saved at age seven or eight. I got baptized. I knew when I was in youth group that I wanted to be a youth pastor. And so I went, there was just one little period for about three years where I went to University of South Carolina, but then I knew I was going to ministry. So I transferred to the Baptist College of Charleston or Charleston Southern, if you will. And then I went to seminary and I worked at the Baptist College and then I went to seminary and then I became, like I've always just done church stuff, right? I've always just done that. And so as you, that, you go through that, you realize, you know what? I mean, my whole life I've been saved, really, since I was young. I've never had this like time where I had, had to, when I was 25 and I wasn't a believer and I felt the deep angst of, oh my gosh, I don't know Jesus or forgiveness or anything. All the way that I can ever remember, it's always been, well, I've known Jesus, I've understood forgiveness, and even as I've done wrong things, I've always understood the gospel enough that I'm forgiven for those things. And so, I also had a lot of guilt in my life, just pretty heavy dose of conviction or maybe even conscience. And so when I look at the spread of my life, there's not a whole lot of crazy, crazy, filthy sins in my kind of humanistic way of looking at it. Also, I'm American. And like, like all of us here, we can make money. Like it's possible. You can go out in this, even in this bad society, we can make a, a significant more amount of money than most people in the world. And so if, some, if I owe somebody some money, I can pay them back. Eventually, I know I can pay them back. We've never, ever lived where it's just impossible to pay somebody back. This never happened in your life. And so as you read this, because if you're like me, you grew up never really doing horrible things, and you're able to make money, unconsciously, subconsciously, whichever one, (laughs) we might accidentally fall over to this category thinking, well, I guess I'm 50. You know, there, there are the sinners. There's the wicked sinners. I, that's, I know you should hear my neighbor, you know, but not me. And so unconsciously, as we look at this, we think two people owed debts, one 500, one 50, both were canceled. And so we're like, yeah, my debt was canceled. But I mean, if I'm looking at everybody else, probably I'm the 50. I'm not the 500. This is dangerous. Dangerous. Here's an illustration of why that's dangerous business. The, the truth is, is that we're all 500, or whatever the worst is, and none of us could ever repay it, ever. If I were to say, all right, we're all going to go outside right now, and we're going to have a jumping contest, okay? Whoever can jump the highest. But the goal is, some of you are shaking their head like, I can't jump, like me neither, all right? But the goal is, you have to touch the clouds. That's the goal. So whoever touched the clouds wins. We all go out there, and we're all jumping. The, the, the silliness of that is that we would marvel at those that could, have, that could jump 50 inches. Like, whoa, look at that. You're like, Jordan, you got way up there. And, you know, the rest of us, we just kind of barely get off the ground. Like, that's all I got. You know, and we think, look at the difference between three inches and 50. Whoa. But the silliness is that none of us um, were able to actually reach the goal. We all failed miserably. I don't know how far clouds are. They're pretty high, right? But if you are... 48 inches higher than me to the clouds, you're a miserable failure, just like me. 
this is what the gospel is teaching us, is that in regard to God's holiness, our sin has made us all miserable failures in keeping his laws and commands. And so instead of saying, well, maybe I'm a 50, I could probably pay back God, I could make things right, I could, I could, I could do some stuff, we're missing, the, we're missing the whole point. The truth is, the heart of the gospel is, is that we have all been forgiving far more than we could ever conceive or imagine those that are in Christ. So the servant understands. That's why this woman acts like, just consider she didn't think she was forgiven very much. She wouldn't bust up into this house. Eh, I was forgiven a little bit. He's a good guy, but you know, I'm living my life now. I got stuff going on. No, no, no. She knew that she was this person, had been forgiven far more than she could ever repay. And so servants, true servants, healthy church members that want to serve, serve out of this amazing, crucial foundation, which is a key understanding of the heart of the gospel, which is that you can never repay back God ever. And so instead of trying to repay back God, um, I want to just live in grace. In other words, let me, let, me, let me break it down in real easy, tangible handles. If you don't read your Bible and you feel like you should because you just got to pay back God for what he's done, you're missing it. You're missing the heart of gospel. If you don't pray enough and you feel like you should because God did something like save you and you got to pay him back for that, you're missing the heart of the gospel. The truth is, is that you never can pay him back and that you never will ever be able to pay him back. So instead, I'm going to stop trying to do all the things for God as payback and just rest in the unceasing grace he gives me for this miserable failure that I am. Everything has been forgiven now and now anything I do as acts of service, I'm not doing it to pay him back. I'm doing it because I want to. As a heart of worship for my king that I'm not paying back, I just love him for saving me. That's a huge difference. This girl, this lady understands it. That's why she busts up into this house and takes all these precautions, and all, I'm not precautions, all these uh, steps and does all this stuff for him doing an amazing, beautiful act of worship. So the first thing, and this is so key to you being a servant, is it's got to be found, it find its foundation in the gospel. True servanthood founds its heart, it founds its foundation in the heart of the gospel. But then we see more. So story time, Simon's, I know the answer, um, the one that's supposed to, the larger jet, debt. You've judged rightly. Good job, Simon. Well done. But now you're in trouble. Turn in it even more. And he turns towards the woman and he's looking at Simon. He said, you see this woman here, Simon? And all of a sudden, Simon's like, oh, man. He read my mind back in verse 39. That didn't mean, I didn't mean to rhyme that. He read my mind back in verse 39, and I'm in trouble now. Oh, I thought he wasn't God, but I guess he is, because he's about to get all up in my junk right here. Look at this. He says in verse uh, 44, turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house the, the things that were supposed to be done for service, you didn't do. Look at this. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't do what was supposed to be done. You didn't ask the foot washer to do it. She's doing it. Next thing. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Kissing his dirty feet. I know he's Jesus, and like it's Jesus' feet, right? but they're still dirty. Like he was a human. It was dirty feet. All right, next thing. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has, not, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So here's the second thing. Without question, 
the first that we find our foundation and servant, it has to be centered in on the heart of the gospel. But now we're going to talk about what does it look like then to be a servant? Servants give all. I will be a Remedy Church member that gives all. Now what does that mean? What does giving all mean? I've got at least four kind of things I can draw straight out of the text of what that means. Um, Certainly there might be more. But I think these four are enough for us to start with. Look at this. Now, there's a similar sounding text um, from Luke 7, 36 through 50 and John chapter 12. I don't think it's the same woman. I think John chapter 12 is Mary Magdalene. I don't think this is Mary Magdalene. That's a whole other conversation. But in that text, in John chapter 12, um, you can see uh, whenever they are now, uh, anointing Jesus' feet, that Judas Iscariot, Mr. Moneyholder, is losing his mind that all this money that was spent on the oil that could have been sold to give money to the poor, yeah, I'm sure you're concerned about the poor, Judas, um, was freaking out because this expensive ointment was put on someone's feet. What a waste of money! Yeah, okay, Judas. But anyway, back to this. It's the same thing here. She has spent quite a bit of money. In John 12, it says a year's worth of, of money was given. Likely, this, this woman is a year's worth of money that perhaps she even earned um, in her old life and is taking it and saying, that old life is no longer counted against me. I'm going to cast or, or give Jesus a precious gift from, from my own treasure, which, of, which she doesn't have much. I mean, this old life she had doesn't let her find easy jobs now. It's not like she can walk in and grab a job at the, you know, the Walmart now, right? So she's, she's taken all of her money she has. She buys this expensive ointment and then puts it all on Jesus' feet. And so here we see the monetary cost of putting this ointment on Jesus' feet is how she gave all. So that's under, under she gave all. The first way she gave all is monetarily. This was probably expensive ointment. And she leveraged her money towards serving Jesus and coming here and not serving her own wants and desires, but instead of serving Jesus. That's the kind of servants we need to be. We leverage our money, and I'm not saying how much. I, I trust the Holy Spirit to, sh- to guide you in that, not me. But we, when we give all, we leverage our money towards using it to serve Jesus, not our own wants and desires. And this is someone that didn't have much money. Not only did she give all monetarily, just consider the picture Right? Consider what all the other people in the room, as they're looking at her, who have no categories for what's going on, didn't know her previous experience, consider the picture of what's going on. I don't think she gives a rip what they think. And so, another way that she served by giving all was she didn't care about societal opinion. I'm going to give all in regard to the way that people look at me and think about me when I'm doing this, I'm still giving all. Societal opinion doesn't matter to me. I'm taking my hair and rubbing it on the feet of this man that saved me and kissing him. So she gave all monetarily and she gave all in regard to what she thinks about um, societal opinion. Just imagine if you served that way. Imagine if you didn't care about societal opinion about the way you served your church or your community. But you did it anyway. And it wasn't based on what people might think about you. That's convicting, isn't it? Not only did she give all monetarily, not only did she give all in regard to societal opinion, but she gave all in standing. In other words, she didn't come up and say, I want to serve you, Jesus, by taking the highest form of the hierarchy here. Who's number one in, in service? What do they do? That's what I want to do for Jesus. But instead, 
she took the lowest form. She served Jesus by taking the lowest. And I think that transforms the way we look at Jesus from John chapter 13. Whenever he washed the disciples' feet, he took the lowest form of servant to show that he was the servant Savior King. So she gave all by choosing the lowest form of servanthood. What would that look like for you? That you don't have to take the highest or the most prestigious servant position in the church, the community group, your family, but instead you took the lowest. She, not only did she give all monetarily, societal opinion standing, but she also, I think, this is just a beautiful picture, she gave all in her worship. She's kissing his dirty feet. And that's an amazing picture. So overwhelmed by the grace that she had, she literally gave all. This is incredible heart of worship. The heart of a servant devoted to Jesus as a deep lover of him for what he's done and kissed his feet like an amazing servant worshiper. So, let me ask some, some application questions here. How can you give all? Servants should give all. How can you give all monetarily? How can you give all in regard to the societal opinion? Do you care about what people think about you as you're serving? How can you give all in the standing or the position you take? Are you willing to take the lowest position when it comes to being a servant? And lastly, can you give all by being a worshiper? Or do you just serve to get the job done? Here's the job, got to get it done. This, I mean... God wants you to not just try to get the job done. He wants you to be a worshiper. L let me give you a handle on what that means. Let me give you a, a, a concrete illustration on what I mean to be a servant worshiper than a servant that just gets the job done. Some of you come here early and set up. Some of you stay late and break down. Some of you work in the kids' area. Um, some of you host community groups. Some of you lead community groups. Those are at least some of the functions of the church. There's, there's many other ways. But what if... Whenever you come here and you're picking up the Bibles and you're setting them under the chairs and you're getting the pens and you're putting them and you're taking out the heavy signs out there or when you're downstairs with the kids and you're changing a diaper or you're telling them about Jesus, what if you didn't just, as you're handing out the Bibles, I've got to get this done and what's my next task? I've got to go make the coffee. I mean, coffee's important. So we've got to have that. And so instead of just getting the job done, what if as you're walking around when you're setting the Bibles, it's an act of worship? God, whoever looks at this Bible, I pray that you save them this morning. Thank you, God, that I have breath and life that I can come here and set this pen. I hope somebody takes this and uses it. Lord, thank you for this coffee. I hope that whenever they come, they feel worshipped and welcomed here. And not worshipped, but welcomed. That was a slip of the tongue. They feel welcomed here, and they get this coffee, and they have good conversation. And so you're, as you're walking around, you're doing everything as an act of worship. I mean, this is what the implications of 1 Corinthians are, are, is that whether you eat or drink 1031, that everything we do... Or, eat or drink, we do everything to the glory of God. What if while you're cleaning a diaper, you're not like, oh, this is awful. And you might still do that, but you say, but I'm doing this as an act of worship. Or you're hosting and you're cleaning up your house because you don't want people to see dirty and you finally get everything stuffed into that one closet and you close it and you put the lock on and you're like, whew, this is clean. Instead of like, has everybody got a house clean? But instead you worship as you clean the house. Lord, thank you for this house that we can host. Thank you that people can come. I hope good friendships happen. See, there's, you're not doing anything different. Both ways, you're still getting the job done. But everything in your mindset shifts. That I'm not just getting the job done, but I'm shifting over to trying to do all these things as a worshiper. Just like she was kissing the feet of Jesus because she was so thankful. I'm doing all these menial tasks, but as a worshiper. That's what, it, that's what I'm talking about. 
And it doesn't have to be, you know, setting up chairs or something like that. It can be something else. All the acts of service that you can do. Servants give all. So servants don't just get the job done. They do. But they give all. They worship when they do it. Here's the last thing. So Simon, bless his heart, right? He's, he's been confronted by Jesus Christ. That's, that's a bad day. Um, and he says that you didn't do any of these things. And then we get to verse 47, which if we could, I, I don't want to over-exaggerate the beauty of verse 47, but it is incredible. The, the theological truth that's in verse 47 is very amazing. There's a lot of other verses that have that, but man, this is incredible. Take us back here to the 50 and 500. Jesus is kind of pointing us back. Where were you in that scale? Where were you when you were thinking about the degree of sin that you've sinned, especially because you look at other people and like, I'm not like, you know, this guy over here. And so we all kind of accidentally maybe put ourselves over in the 50 category. Jesus says, the way that you think or how much you think that you've been forgiven is directly related to how much you love Jesus, how much you love God. This is astounding. Look at verse 47. I tell you, looking at Simon, because he has no concept. He's never been forgiven of anything. He doesn't understand the forgiveness of God. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, and everybody here can agree. I bet there's some people in the house that even know and can attest to her sinfulness. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which everybody knows have been forgiven, for she loved much. But notice this. So she's been forgiven a lot, and that's why she has such a large, much expression of love. But, here it is, but he who is forgiven little, he who thinks he has never really done a whole lot and hasn't had a whole lot of sin that's been forgiven, look at this, but he who is forgiven little loves little. That is dangerous. If you really play around with the idea that you're a big, huge, high jumper, and that you can outjump everybody, or let's just say it the other way, you don't sin much, and you haven't been forgiven a whole lot of things compared to everybody, the direct thing that's being said here is that mindset yields for you a little small love for Jesus. You don't, you don't mean to. It's not like you're asking to do that. You don't want that to happen. But that's what happens. You don't think you've been forgiven very much. But if we all take ourselves back and realize... This prostitute and me, no different. I'm no different than this prostitute. I am a prostitute when it comes to my sin. Because I have willingly, willingly chosen sin. And if it's just one, that's all it takes. And I've never, ever come close to the mark of holiness. And if we all realize that we've been forgiven a lot, then we will love God we will love Christ a lot. That brings us right into our third point, which is this. Servants serve out of love, not obligation. We realize how much we've been forgiven. We serve out of love. We don't just feel obliged to do it. But instead, we serve out of love. God has forgiven me of so much. I'm not obligated. Sure, I want to. But I want to, out of love, serve His church and serve Him. In this book Tom Rainer uh, wrote, he, he talks about country club members, and he kind of puts in two categories, country club members versus healthy church members. And so to stay in our little thing, country club members are the ones that serve out of obligation. 
Healthy church members are the ones that serve out of love. He says country club members or those that serve out of obligation agree to serve out of obligation. They have a legalistic approach to serving though. It's not what they want to do because for them, it's not about working. It's about being served. They begrudgingly accept the task and begin it already with a bad attitude. And some will even get mad when they're asked to do it. And they respond that they already did their serving time earlier on in their early church years. And he puts in a little thing, like a prison sentence. And then he says, and they don't last long when it comes to serving. And this is, this is those kinds, and I'm not saying that that's us, by the way. Um, Carrie Blankenship, our kids director, just said, of all the volunteers here, we're having a volunteer Christmas party December 7th. And we're inviting everybody that volunteers at Remedy. And she said, I think there's like 85 people or something like that. That's a lot of people. I mean, I think everybody in the church has worked in the kids area at some point. Um, so I'm not saying that's you, but I'm saying we want, to, the reason why we did this series is to become healthy, 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 healthy church members as, as far as we can. So we want to show the body that we serve Jesus out of love, not out of obligation. And here's how you can do that. Here's how you can serve King Jesus out of love and not out of obligation. Verse 47. The degree that you have been forgiven for your salvation is the same measure in which you love God. Service, Rainer says, service to God in your church is a natural outflow of the joy of our salvation and the consequent joy of our membership, church membership. The way that we serve is f- out of love is fall in love with Jesus more and understand how much we've been forgiven. So let me ask one last question and then we'll, we'll respond. When asked to give your time to serve the church, when asked to give your gifts to serve the church, when asked to give any resource you have to serve the church, and I, I stated it this way because I just know my own heart and head and this is how I would think. Do you first try to think of as many reasons why you can't or try to think of as many other people that can do it better than you and come up with that excuse first? Or when asked, do you consider it an honor to serve the church out of love for God and give your time, talents, and resources to the church? I know myself. Stuff that doesn't sound fun, the low end of the, st- of the totem pole, if you will. You know who's good at that? You know, he's good at that. Bob's awesome at that, not me. I mean, you want someone that can do that thing? Bob's your man. I'm not that guy. It's the first thing I think of. That's bad. Instead of, I've been forgiven so much, as he says, service to God is a natural outflow of the joy of my salvation and the consequent joy to our church membership. I've been saved by so much, and I'm so thankful. I'm so joyous of this salvation that he's given me. I want to serve God as much as I can by serving the church. So, here at Remedy, we have revelation response. In other words, we have one song that we kind of prepare our hearts, and then we hear the word, and then we have time, three or four songs to to worship, to respond. And so perhaps in some of these things, as you've been looking at them, the Lord has kind of pointed in a little bit on your heart, on one of these maybe. Maybe you don't serve 
because you have a deep understanding of the gospel. You're just trying to pay back God. Maybe when you serve, you don't give all, whether it's monetarily or societal opinion or standing, or you just don't worship. You just get the job done. Or perhaps as you serve, it's not out of love. It's just out of obligation because you feel like you're supposed to or you feel guilty. If there's anything here that the Lord has pressed upon your heart, I just say during this, we have, we have space here. We have plenty of time. If God himself has spoken to us through his word, which this is God's word, not mine's. If he's spoken to you, then take some time here to think, pray, maybe confess, respond, and then stand and give him the glory and worship. Jordan's going to lead us in a time of response through song, and I just invite you to, um, however the Holy Spirit's leading, respond in worship. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this time that we can come together and gather as a corporate body. I pray that when what we've talked about, about being a servant church member would be something that we hear and we respond to. That none of us would want to just kind of float through selfishly, but instead find the greatest joy, which is serving. Following your example, you came not to be served, but to serve. And I pray that we would do that as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.